0: This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. In South Africa, 91 is an authorized financial services provider. This podcast is the second in a series which is entitled The Great Shutdown and its medium-term effects and with me today is Sahil Matani who is strategist at the Investment Institute at 91 in London and what I like about this Sahil is the fact that it says medium-term. In other words a couple of months ago it might have been short-term but now it's gone to medium-term. I wonder if there's any prospect that it actually goes to long-term in the next few months.
1: Hi Lindsay, Yes, I think we're all busy trying to understand what COVID is doing to supply chains, the economy and markets over the, the coming years and indeed decades. Um, I mean, this piece is focused on the medium term, which is over the next few years. Basically, the premise of the piece is that people are concerned that globalization has stalled since the global financial crisis. The pandemic has disrupted globalization even further, especially the move towards highly concentrated global supply chains. And now the fear is that we're in this kind of spiral of self-reinforcing deglobalization. I think clearly there is going to be some deglobalization of supply chains. You know, we know things like 97% of antibiotics in the U.S. depend on Chinese pharmaceutical firms. I mean, clearly some things are politically very unsustainable. But let me try to put forward a slightly different view, which is that Uh, globalization is changing, but you're not going to get this kind of self-reinforcing deglobalization. At least that's the conclusion of the piece.
0: Just before you go on, what I didn't do, which was remiss of me, was I didn't introduce the second part of your series. The piece that you've kindly sent me is, will the pandemic spur deglobalization? And what you say is you bring in the regionalization aspect. And to me, And there's lots of words here. But I think that what you say is that the regionalization is almost a compartmentalization of deglobalization, if you see what I mean. So maybe you could carry on and tell us what regionalization is.
1: Yeah, I mean, lots of words, but very simple ideas here, which is that globalization was changing before the crisis and it was already becoming quite regional. So when we talk about supply chains, we're often focused on the U.S. and China. But over 50% of gross exports from East Asia, Europe, and North America, respectively, all go to themselves. And if you look at uh, the value-added aspect of of trade, because you can look at trade from a gross export point of view, but you can also look at value-added, where you minus the processing imports, um, that regional picture is even stronger. So, for example, the WTO has these network analyses, which I find really interesting. They've got bubbles, which show the size of the exports from each region. And then they've got line connectors, which point to uh, the flows between the regions. And what you see is that there are actually three centers of global trade. There's Germany, China, and the US. And a lot of the real relationships, the largest relationships of trade, are between these centers and their regional satellites. And then there are also arrows between Germany, China, and the U.S. But It's really a regionalized uh, picture. And if you look at uh, global value chains, so the earlier uh, image I was describing to you is actually looking at direct consumption. So things like French wine for uh, drinking in the, in, in the U.K., yes. but if you look at global value chains, which are products that pass through true borders, um, actually the arrows between the big centers, Germany, China, and the U.S., are not that significant. What's really significant are the, the regional arrows. And so at least at that level of abstraction, uh, globalization is a pretty regional phenomenon, um, and it's becoming even more so... Um, for example, uh, you know, one of the things that I like to point out is that this idea of globaliza- de-globalization um, is actually a function of EMs consuming more of what they produce. So in 2005, you know, about a quarter of what China produced by value-added was actually driven by foreign consumption. That's down now to 17%. Is that deglobalization or is that just uh, a consumption-led uh, growth in East Asia and in particular China. So I think there's, there's an element of, of naturalness and there's an element of regionalization which has been going on for the last 10, 15 years, um, and perhaps even longer.
0: Yes, uh, I mean. The reason
1: wh- this is important is because regional trade is, is far less contentious um, than global trade because countries are always trying to expand influence in their neighborhood. So with China, we've also we've got one belt, one road, which everyone knows about. Yes. You've also got RCEP, which is more to do with China's relationship with Southeast Asia. Um, Japan has TPP, which was signed in 2018. Um, You know, people don't fixate on this, but actually tariffs between China and its uh, neighbors went down, even though Chinese tariffs on the U.S. went up after the trade war. So clearly, there is a regionalizing element to this, which is getting stronger, um, even if people are worried about global trade in aggregate.
0: You talked about Germany. so many things I've been scribbling down here, Sahil. You talked about Germany, China and the US. You didn't mention Japan once. Why is that? Is that just because it's part of a region or is it because it's become insignificant after those top three that you just mentioned?
1: Well, in the in the trade maps that we look at, Japan is, is a big trading Uh, partner, but it is mainly uh, feeding into Chinese consumption and Chinese production patterns, which I think is interesting. I mean, famously, when you look at the iPhone value added, for example, most of the value generated by Chinese exports of the iPhone to the U.S. are actually imported from other countries, and Japan is at the top part of that value chain. So that's the sort of illustration of how Japan maybe feeds into uh, global trade
0: you say the following our base case is a continuation of that regionalization trend a self reinforcing process of deglobalization is still possible you say but we consider this a risk case meanwhile covid-19 also poses an upside risk to globalization given the extraordinary positive impulse to digital services trade i mean these these are extraordinary times say i mean these are really big issues you're bringing up here
1: yeah it's uh, the the services uplift i think is something people don't focus on as much as they should. Um, I mean, services is a smaller part of global trade flows than um, the goods that you and I buy for our consumption. But services has been growing um, at uh, about 4% uh, rate between 2008 and 2018 relative to goods, which has been growing at about just slightly above 2%. Um, I mean, clearly physically delivered services have taken a hit, uh, tourism is, is down. We're not traveling anywhere anytime soon. Um, but new types of services have seen a massive positive shock. Uh, telehealth is is becoming normalized, I think, in this crisis. Um, I saw some stats looking at uh, Microsoft Teams use in Italy, which is up 800% over the period of the, the pandemic. And so clearly some types of international trade are becoming... Um, more normalized as a result of the crisis rather than less. So, so that, that is an upside risk, which I think is not, not factored in as much. Um, I think when you look at this as an investor, the natural uh, process is to think about what deglobalization means for inflation. And people are talking about this self-reinforcing deglobalization, which uh, you and I just talked about. Yes. And if that were to happen, that would clearly push inflation up. In the context of the regionalization we just discussed, and the sort of shorter-term disinflationary impulse from COVID-19 as unemployment rises and uh, consumption declines, I think our base case is that we're not expecting a big upsurge in inflation over the medium term. On a more granular level, uh, Mark Carney, the um, uh, former Bank of England governor, delivered a speech in 2017, and he outlined a framework. and He said... How does globalization affect inflation? There are three components. So the first is domestic resource utilization. This is uh, factories running at, lo- at higher capacity because of global demand. Um, so obviously, because of COVID, that number goes down. So that's a disinflationary impulse. On the other hand, you've got higher prices due to more fragmented supply chains. So that's aside the inflationary impulse. And then you've got changes in the labor market. In the 90s, that meant offshoring production, which pushed inflation down. Clearly, you're going to see some reshoring, so that will push inflation up. Uh, But you're also getting this services uplift, which, because it involves the globalization of labor, it pushes inflation down. So what that tells me is that it's not a slam dunk that you're going to get inflation, because there's so many vectors pushing in different directions. And actually, it seems like, you're going to get pretty similar inflation impulse to what we had pre-crisis.
0: So what you're saying is that uh, what we've seen over the last uh, 10, 11 years, in other words, a mass injection of liquidity uh, from central banks, whether it be the ECB, whether it be the US Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, or the Bank of Japan, uh, the fact is it hasn't created inflation over the, the last decade or so, perhaps even more. And this level two of liquidity injection is also not going to spur inflation because of the lack of demand because we're not behaving as we used to behave.
1: Yeah, I, I think in the short term, the disinflationary impulse from uh, weakening demand uh, will tend to keep a check on the amount of liquidity that the system can accommodate. But what you're highlighting there is that inflation uh, is something that's determined by many factors. I mean, I was just outlining how glob- deglobalization affects inflation. But inflation is determined by many things. It's determined by the amount of money in the system. It's determined by the inflation expectations that people have. It's determined by local policy and uh, you know d- domestic laws. Um, so it's a really complicated subject, but I try to sort of isolate the element that globalization contributes to it. And I think the picture we paint is a little bit more sanguine than some of the fears that people have. I mean, the way I like to think about it. Uh, is following Danny Roderick, who is an economics professor, uh, who who sort of characterizes the globalization we had in the 90s and 2000s as hyper-globalization. This is where international integration came at the expense of domestic integration. You had a lot of inequality, um, sort of wage inequality, spatial inequality. Um, and now you're moving to something much more durable. You're moving to a kind of uh, actually quite similar to the Bretton Woods uh, Uh, period of globalization we saw after the Second World War, where you have plenty of cooperation, actually. You've got tax cooperation. You've got trade cooperation among many countries. You've got uh, climate change cooperation. Uh, Regional FTAs have actually gone up, uh, regional free trade agreements, that is. Um, So there's plenty of cooperation. It's not a return to the 30s, which is the analogy that a lot of analysts seem to uh, return to, uh, you know, I don't think that is particularly justified in light of the evidence. Um, what you're getting is, is just a slight reversal of what was the norm in the 90s and 2000s, and particularly entrenching, I think, this regionalization trend um, that, that we, we've seen over the last decade.
0: I want to go back, just to conclude this discussion, I want to go back to your second paragraph in your sort of executive summary. It says the following, the type of globalization that characterized the 1990s and 2000s was already receding before the crisis, the COVID 19 crisis. In its place, regionalization was leading, a variant of globalization, but not in and of itself, deglobalization. So we've we've spoken about that. But that's, that's very interesting. So a trend was in place, and it's been reinforced by COVID-19, and exactly. the aftermath of COVID-19, and also by human behavior. And at the moment, we don't understand how we're behaving. We don't understand, and markets don't understand, and businesses don't understand what human behavior will be in the next few months, and even the next few years. So again, you're going to be very, very busy, Sahil.
1: Yeah, it, it's very it's very exciting times, and actually, just trying to put together the the macro signals that we're getting with some of the signals that companies are delivering is particularly interesting. I think the the upside uh, case to globalization is is underrated um, as an argument uh, because what, what happens is people focus on the headline indicators of globalization. Right? You've got these um, actually Etihad Zurich. Uh, The university has a kind of composite indicator of globalization. That has stalled since 2008. People will focus on FDI inflows. That also peaked um, around the global financial crisis. So they focus on those sorts of measures. But actually underneath, um, so much is changing. So many types of relationships are are evolving either into a more regional direction or more into a digitalization and a services impulse. Um, And actually, if if you look at... One thing people uh, sort of miss when they talk about trade is that if you look at the top five most traded uh, goods, um, according to WTO classifications, passenger vehicles and mineral oils are in the top five. So if globalization wasn't stagnating by the headline measures, something would be wrong, because clearly there are structural disruptors in the automotive sector and in the commodities trade. But what you really have to focus on is... uh, as you say, the change in human behaviour and the change in in institutions that's happening as a result of COVID-19, and particularly focus on the services trade and this regional um, trade. Uh, arrangements which are which are being entrenched i think as a result of this crisis
0: i think next time we speak maybe three to six months time we'll be having a very very different discussion or maybe even just an embellishment of the discussion we've just had sahil thanks so much for your time that's sahil matani strategist at the investment institute at 91 in london